Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. That is so fun, isn't it? Man, I must be getting old because I'm just like, ooh, babies, you know, cute. Wow. I actually have a lot of fun because Heather Hremsky works here at church, and so uh, we have an infant at work policy, but basically that means as long as she does her job, we don't care. And so she comes, and she brings uh, little Eli sometimes, and we get to hear, is that okay? We get to hear him squeak and coo and stuff like that. It makes for a fun day. It's a pleasant sound around the office. So praise God for his gift of life. My name is Jeremy. I'm a preaching pastor here. I'm delighted that you're here to worship with us this morning. Uh, December 23rd, 1787. Fifteen-year-old Roger Byam set sail from England aboard Her Majesty's merchant ship, the HMS Bounty. It was captained by William Bly, first mate, Lieutenant Fletcher Christian. And the mission was to collect breadfruit trees from the Tahitian Islands and then redistribute them to see if they could grow them uh, somewhere else. It was a long and arduous uh, voyage, and two years in, they're running out of food, the water is horrible, the conditions are miserable. People are beginning to wonder if they're ever going to make it to their destination, let alone collect the trees and be able to get back. Meanwhile, the captain is growing all the more cruel and tyrannical in his approach. He thinks the harder you are, the better the captain. As a result, the ship's crew are suffering tremendously. And they begin to question their fate. Will they um, even survive, let alone bring back these trees? It was a horrible way to live under the slavery. And basically, they were, in a sense, stuck with only two options. One is they could stay under the evil captain and suffer whatever fate he may bring them, which could include lashings and being chained uh, below deck and all this other horrible, miserable stuff that we can't even imagine today. Or they could rebel and start a mutiny, in which case they would be forever labeled uh, traitors and mutineers against Her Majesty. It was an awful, awful predicament. And then on April 28, 1789, that's two years after they left port, it happened. The mutiny on the bounty They decided that their situation was so bad that their only hope of survival was to rebel. So in a sense, they took freedom into their own hands, and as a result, they were able to get off the ship. But then you have to ask yourself the question, well, were they really free? And the answer, of course, is no. Because they would be labeled as mutineers and hunted for the rest of their lives and forever on the run. These are the options for those who are under tyrannical rule. They can either stay under that rule, in which case they suffer the fate of whatever the dictator decides, or they can choose to mutinize and become rebels and hunted for the rest of their lives. Such is the case for those of us who live under the tyranny of sin. Born into this condition of slavery, we were at the disposal of our master. 
as a result, we're given basically two different scenarios. What, what will we do? Will we rebel and try to deliver ourselves on our own or will we stay under his wicked rule? Who will deliver us from our fate? Who will lead us to safety? Who will guide us through the high seas adventure of life? Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We're going through the book of Galatians in our church, and basically what that is is it's a letter to some churches off the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this is the pink one or the red one is Asia, where uh, Galatia, the Galatians were located, the various churches of this Roman province. It's modern-day Turkey. And basically what's happening is there's a big brouhaha stirring. There is the traditional ethnic Jewish people who live by their traditions and law, and they believe that the way to come out from under the yoke of slavery is by their own self-effort. They think if they just try hard enough and they pull themselves up by their bootstraps that they will indeed be able to escape. Then there is the other approach, which is the Apostle Paul, and he's basically saying all your laws, all your traditions, even the covenant of circumcision itself, just won't cut it. Okay, good morning. <laughs> My name's Pastor Jeremy. Let's try this again. No. That's going to happen actually a lot in this chapter. So if you're paying attention and you're reading through, there's a number of play on words, which I myself am not going to pull out. But that type of thing with words like severed and other things, the apostle is specifically using on purpose to draw attention to this issue. That this physical act of humanity is not enough to save their souls. So the whole, the whole uh, letter is structured around this. And today I'm just going to use somewhat a nautical theme to sort of do that. So the theme that I would say is this, is only Captain Spirit can deliver the treasure promised in the gospel. Only Captain Spirit can deliver the treasure that is promised in the gospel. This is the whole message that moves through the book of Galatians. In a way, and you don't have to put up this slide yet, but in a way you could summarize the whole book of Galatians in these three letters, GPS, GPS, just like Global Positioning System, GPS. Now my dad, you know, he's kind of a gear, gadget, nerdy, science type guy, no offense, all the rest of you, but that's the way he was. And I can actually remember when the first GPS came out because my dad had one. You know, they weren't garments, they weren't phones, they weren't anything else. Instead, it was this great big walkie-talkie looking thing with a little tiny green screen and a huge, like, um, antenna that you put on top of your car. So there's my dad taking 30 minutes to go to a 10-minute destination, figuring out, you know, oh, how do we program this in? It's so cool because if we get lost, we can follow ourselves back on latitude and longitude of this little green screen. You know, and the rest of us are waiting in the car like, oh, man. 
Here is the deal with the book of Galatians. You can follow the message. You can track it all the way through the book using these three letters, using GPS. So one of the things I want you to come away with today, as we're nearly through this book, we're about two-thirds of the way through, is the letters GPS because through the, here we go, slide, gospel, through the promise, through the spirit, you will see the movement of this message. The book begins in the first two chapters with the truth of the gospel. Here is the truth of the universal message of God's redemptive plan of salvation. Here is the baseline, the foundation. Next, in chapters 3 through 4, because of that gospel, here is the promise that you get as a result. This is what God is giving to you. Here's the promise. And then, once you understand and apply that gospel and you begin to look forward to that promise you begin to live by the spirit this is the movement of the book and so you see the message of captain spirit guiding you to the promised treasure throughout the coordinates or gps of this book so it begins with the gospel moves to the promise and then finally now in chapters five through six you see how to actually live your life now by the power of the Spirit. Said another way, it looks like this. The foundation is the gospel. Number one is the gospel. Number two is the promise. Number three is the Spirit. Foundation of our Christian life is the gospel. The motivation is the promise, what we get at the end. And the application, the thing that helps us do it, is the Spirit. So it moves from foundation to motivation to application. Where it begins, what gets us going, and what keeps us motivated or going throughout the whole thing. So, gospel, promise, spirit. Now, in chapter 5, it's really cool because what you come to is sort of the hinge or the transition. Chapter 5, verse 1, is the hinge or the transition. And what you see is, you know, chapters 1 through 2 are the gospel. Chapter 3 through 4 are the promise. And then... 5.1, that verse that we just read, for freedom Christ has set you free, therefore stand firm and do not be submitted again by the yoke of slavery. That thing is literally the hinge that transitions from the gospel and promise now to the application or the real life stuff that the Spirit will help you to do. So in other words, just like in all of his epistles, this is the way the apostle works it, He moves from what God did in the past, the gospel, what God did. Your Christian life is not based on you. It's based on God and what he did from the beginning, from the start, from before the foundations of the earth. God, what God did, Galatians 1 through 4. Now, what we do, Galatians 5 through 6. This is the hens or transitional uh, passage for this book. It's also the theme as well. So what I would say to you this morning is climb aboard, mateys, as we sail through Galatians chapter 5. Okay, thanks. You guys are gracious. I appreciate it. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Climb aboard. Here we go. Galatians 5, 1 through 10. For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, Stand firm and do not submit again to yoke of slavery. There's a summary of the whole book from from God's act to our commands. Now, moving into our commands, this is what the apostle is going to do. 
It's going to show two polar opposite views. Here they are. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that's one view, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, the Captain Spirit, by faith we ourselves eagerly await the promise, which is the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself through love. Now, what happened? These guys were trying to poison the well. You guys were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from God, Him who calls you. Look, here's an analogy. A little leaven uh, leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you or trying to poison the well will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But... If I, brothers, am still preaching circumcision, then why in the world would I be persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Go the whole way. For, free, uh, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall or thou shalt, not thou shalt not, but thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Galatians chapter 5, the word of the Lord. As I said earlier, verse 1 was the transition verse for freedom. Christ has set us free. That's chapters 1 through 4. That's the whole message of the gospel and the promise. God has set you free. Now he's going to move into the commands, what you should do in your life. As a result, he says, stand firm. Stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Chapters 5 through 6. Now that's the broad view. But if you want to drill down a little bit and look at the more close-up picture, these following verses sort of break down like this. What you have is four different sections, essentially. And the first contrasts two polar opposite views. Verses 2 through 6 are basically saying, okay, there's one side that says, you know, we are delivered from slavery by our own effort. We work, we work, we pull ourselves up by our bootstrap, we apply the law, we apply the covenants of circumcision, we have this contractual agreement, we fulfill it, we're good to go. The other side, the Apostle Paul says, yeah, that would be true if you actually could, but no one even comes close, so you're wasting your time. You cannot pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You're drowning. You are below the depths and you'll never get out. Consequently, there's only one way, and that is by grace through faith. Christ or nothing. That is the way it has to go. So it begins with con- <laughs> excuse me, contrasting these two different views. And then he talks about the people who are trying to pervert um, his message and they're sort of poisoning the well. And then he's talking about how they feel and how he feels. And as you can see from his language here, their passions run very, very high. <laughs> they say some ridiculous things. And then he responds by saying, okay, if 
you want to play that game, then let's go the whole way and really apply it and see if you can't just, you know, totally circumcise yourselves. In which case, what happens? Well, in real life, if someone is emasculated, they cannot reproduce. So too with these Judaizers, the apostles saying to them, hey, you guys are spreading heresy. You're blocking the gospel from going forward. I don't want you to reproduce yourselves. Why don't you just end the whole thing? Go the full nine yards and emasculate yourselves. Obviously, their passions run high. Then in the final section, it's about um, freedom and slavery. So there's a couple of things in that that I want to pull out that are really, really significant. That's the big, big breakdown of this section. Uh, but for me, some of the things that really jump out particularly come in verse 5 where it says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Now this is an interesting text to apply to Christians because there's so many ways you can go after it. And first, first of all, the concepts of hope and righteousness almost blow our minds because we don't even know really what righteousness is. I asked that question on Facebook this week. I'm like, hey, um, what's the benefits of righteousness? And I have very few answers. And I'm starting to think about that. Like, why, why can't we answer that question? I think what I think, my theory, I could be wrong. This is me thinking out loud. But my theory is the reason we don't answer that question is, first of all, because we don't know. And secondly, because we think righteousness means just the absence of sin. And consequently, when we think of sin, we often think of indulgences or things that are fun. And so when we think of righteousness, we're kind of like, yeah, it takes away all the good stuff. You know, I don't know what the benefits might be. What are the benefits of righteousness? Well, in my mind, basically it's this. is When we think of the absence of sin as righteousness, we miss the picture of that sin actually takes away from our good and takes away from our joy and increases our pain. So the reality is, if you want more joy, if you want more fulfillment, if you want more of the good stuff, then you want more of God and less of sin. In other words, you want to be righteous. And in being righteous, you will actually be then more satisfied, more fulfilled, less pain, and more joyful all of your life. So it is in fact this beautiful hope, this beautiful promise, this reality that God has guaranteed that in the end, pain will be removed, sickness will be removed, death will be removed. Revelation chapter 1, 21, Romans chapter 8. This is all things working together for good, when not only is the penalty of sin done away with, which it was in the cross, but the reality of sin, which it will be eliminated when Christ returns. What we have now is this sort of difficult in-between time where we struggle. We know we're forgiven, but we're just not there yet. And so we're like, oh man, what you want is righteousness. What you want is joy. That's where the real benefit comes when there's no more sin, there's no more regret, there's no more pain, there's no more, oh, shoot, I messed up. There's just like, yes, this is awesome. That's what we're after. Righteousness is great. It heals all of our relationships. It clears the path to complete satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy. 
So we look forward to this promise, and what's beautiful about it in chapter 5, or verse 5, is it says, we eagerly await. Why? Because it's a hope. Whoa, whoa, whoa. hope. You know, I hope the Spartans would win yesterday. Just kidding. I didn't say, I didn't hope that. I stood with different people on the soccer, you know, sidelines, and depending on what color of shirt they were wearing, they're like, who are you rooting for? I'm like, right now I'm rooting for the Spartans. <laughs> Move to the other side. Right now I'm rooting for the Wolverines, you know? Who should I be rooting for right now? Okay. Anyways, it's, it's not this transient hope. It's not like, oh man, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope this, my team wins. I hope I have the winning lottery ticket. That has nothing to do with the Bible. The Bible, when it speaks of hope, is a solid guarantee. In other words, it's saying you've got the winning ticket. It's in your back pocket. Now, it hasn't been realized yet because Christ hasn't returned and you haven't cashed it in. So you have that voucher that is good for one soul that is righteous, and it is yours, and it is ready to exchange, but the, tra- the final transaction hasn't occurred. The initial transaction has occurred when Christ bought it for you. He bought this ticket. He paid the price. He gave it to you. It's in your back pocket. You've got it. It's yours. It's a guarantee. It's not something you're scratching your head going, man, I just hope this will happen. No. It is the hope, the promise of God's righteousness. The other night, Robin and I came back from uh, dinner out. And, of course, our little three-year-old always has trouble going to sleep when this happens. And it was really fun because when we came in the door, you know, she burst out of her bed and she's like, Mommy, Mommy, I knew you'd come home. I just knew it, you know. And it was fun because time is relative to them, right? They don't really, like the older kids understand, all right, we'll be back at nine or whatever. You'll be asleep. Okay, whatever. The little girl's like, mommy's gone. When she's coming back? But she trusted in the character of her mother to the extent that she knew, based on the faithfulness of her mom, that her mom would return. So this hope was a guarantee. She didn't exactly understand the time frame, but she was sure that mommy would come back. So too with Christ and the promise of the gospel. Based on who he is, we know who he is. We know what he did. We know what he is capable of. We know he will come back. We know he will return. And we know we will be made righteous. It's a guarantee. So when he comes back, we're like, Daddy, Daddy, we know you would come back. We knew you'd be here. We're so glad you returned. There he is. It's a promise. We don't have to worry. You've got it. That is why this text says we eagerly await we eagerly await it's not like we sit back and go oh man i don't know we're like yes when's it going to happen we're standing at the door waiting for him to get there like i know he's coming i know he's coming i know he will i'm just waiting here it comes he's coming it's all good we eagerly eagerly await this promise this guarantee it's not a question it's a promise it's a promise from him who is faithful good that's verse five then these guys try to poison the well you know they say bad things about paul and try to trick his audience such is the case when you proclaim the gospel people say bad things about you Uh, then his passions run high not because he's necessarily mad about mad at them although somewhat he is but the reality is he is trying to make clear this message which is the difference between life and death And it bothers him when people mess that up. False teachers aggravate the apostles. 
And so they go after him very strongly. That's verses 11 and 12. And then, verse, and then the final verses there uh, begin to show us really what true freedom looks like. And what I would say is this, is that true freedom is actually slavery. True freedom is slavery. This week I was thinking about the, um, this phrase as I was interacting with some people and having some conversations. I think it's one we use to comfort ourselves. We say to others, hey, you know what? In this situation, there's nothing you can do. You can't control others. You can only control yourselves. And many of us nod our heads and go, yeah, that's true. And what we mean is we can't really make somebody else do what we think they should do. You just can't. You can try to make yourself, but you definitely can't make somebody else. I begin to think about that statement. Wow. How wrong is that? That statement is so wrong. I mean, it's beyond wrong. I think the devil himself might have invented that one. Because what it does is it tricks us into thinking that we can actually control ourselves. We're like, that's true, I can't control somebody else, but I can control me. You know, if I just put up enough boundaries, or I learn the right people skills, or I apply the right paradigm, or I fix the model, or whatever, then I apply it, and I'll, it'll work. That's what the Judaizers said. This is the law. If we just do it right, we can get it ourselves. We'll figure it out, no problem. We got this. That's so wrong. Not only can you not control others, you definitely can't control yourself. Can you really control yourself? Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have accidentally let something slip at some point or another? <laughs> Said something you regret, you wish you wouldn't have. Even if you didn't say it, maybe you gave off the vibe that steam was rolling off your head or the look coming from your eyes or whatever. That person knew what you were feeling even if you didn't communicate it. How many of you have blown it? How many of you have messed up? We can't control ourselves. I don't want to control myself. Some people think, I know what I'll do. I'll go into business for myself so I can be my own boss. And all the real entrepreneurs out here are thinking, yeah, then you just got 10 million other bosses, right? Customers, clients, suppliers, whatever. You're never your own boss. And even if you were, you'd be a lousy one. (laughs) I'm a horrible boss. I'm a horrible master. I'm meaner to myself than anybody else. I crack that whip and never am good enough for me and blah, 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 blah. I don't have the resources. I don't have the smarts. I don't have the power. I can't do it. Why would I think that I would actually be a good boss? That's crazy. I don't want to even be my own boss. If I try to become my own master, all I am is enslaved to myself. And here I am again aboard that ship going below deck thinking, boy, I got out from under his control. I mutinized. Yeah, now I get to be out in the middle of the ocean with a little rowboat going, ooh, I'm on my own. This is great. (laughs) Until the sharks come, right? And the storm. Yeah, I'm free. I'm being hunted by Her Majesty's Royal Navy as a traitor. That doesn't sound so great. That's not how you free yourself. So what option do I have? Who will truly liberate me from the law of sin and death? Only Jesus can free us from ourselves. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. 
True freedom means slavery to Christ. Freedom from sin and freedom from yourself. I gave you one or two options at the start, but as you know, that's never the case. There's always a third. And this situation is this. Option three is slavery to Christ. If you are completely enslaved to Him, what a blessed event that is. Then you are freed from all the misery of the sin and law, and you are freed from all the mistakes of yourself. You are promised an eternal inheritance on Paradise Island, and He has given you the Spirit to help get you there. How blessed are we. I don't want to be my own boss. I want Jesus. I never want to be my own captain. And this is how it applies to your life then. You come into a situation, and it's a struggle, and you're tempted one way or another. Let's say it's like this. You're tempted to just unload on the person. Or, you know this person's in sin, and you know what they're doing is wrong. You don't really want to say anything about it because it might come back at you. So you you could be tempted one way just to blast them, or you could be tempted another way just to look the other way. What do you do? Well, you stand in the middle and you say, you know, reality, I don't get to make this decision. I've got to ask the Master, Lord God, what do you want me to do? Okay, so I can't blast that person? All right, you're the boss, not me. I have to go speak to them? Oh, I don't really want to. Okay, you're the boss, not me. And all the way through, you're not controlling your own life, but you're asking the captain, what does he want you to do? And in that situation, then it changes things dramatically. Because you're saying, Lord, I don't think I have the strength to talk to this person. God's saying, you're right, you don't. I do. I'm your captain, I'll help. Lord, I don't think I have the patience to deal with my kids right now. I am not ready for this. I do not have it. I am worn out. I am spent. And I hear this going on and I'm not ready. Lord, I need some help. Provide the resources. You're the captain. These are yours, not mine. Help me out. Here we go. All the way through, you're asking this question. Who's the captain of the ship? Only Jesus can truly set you free. One last nautical analogy and then we'll close. If you want to think of it like this, think of creation, redemption, fall, restoration, all in terms of this sea voyage. And here's what happens. At the beginning, the designer of the ship makes this beautiful vessel. Something like you'd see at the Tall Ships Festival or whatever. Just this perfect sailing vessel. And he puts his crew on board. He says, enjoy it. It's all for you. There's nothing bad here. Go for it. And crew's like, whoo, sweet. Here we go. Sailing with the wind. All of a sudden, some pirate rose up alongside the boat and says, ah, he was wrong. Don't listen to him. I got something better to show you. They're like, what? Nah. Yeah, really. Trust me. He just doesn't want you to know about it. Okay, come aboard. Try this. Sure, that's good. By the way, now you're enslaved. You're You're addicted to rum, and I am now your master, and you will do as I bid. And you are chained below deck in a cage, only getting out to swab the deck. Welcome to the life of sin, Genesis chapter 3. But then at some point, all of a sudden, His Majesty, knowing that what would happen, sends 
his best general to this ship to take the pirate and deal with him. He frees you from your chains, you're let out, and as a result, you're free to sail again. But the problem is that pirate's still aboard, right? So even though you've been freed, the pirate's there. And he comes back every so often and says, "Uh, you remember how it used to be? Let's go that way. Try it again. Why don't you poke this person over here? It'll be funny. Go for it. And he tempts you. And occasionally, out of habit or out of whatever, you return. But then the captain comes back and reminds you and keeps you going forward. But at the end of the day, the promise is, the majesty is like, I'm not going to let my ship get away. This is mine. And I'm not going to let the bad guys take it. And so when we get to the right point in the middle of the sea, when it's super duper deep, down to the bottom of the abyss, i.e. hell, I'm going to take that pirate and throw him overboard. And then I'm going to throw everything dirty out with him. And it's going down to the bottom of the sea. And we're moving on and we're crossing to the promised land where you will get your inheritance and be free from sin for the rest of your life. That's the nature of God's plan. And here we are midstream, you know, in the middle, having been freed, having experienced sin, but not being to the treasure island or reaching our promised inheritance yet. And God is saying to you, look, the only way you can get there is if you are driven by the wind. The Spirit Himself. The pneuma of God. Only Captain Spirit can get you to your treasure. The gospel is a promise. It will free you. It will give you righteousness. But right now as you struggle and you watch that old master try to come back, you have to say, no, you are not my master. And I am not my master. And I'm not going to try to run this boat myself. I want Lord King Jesus to captain this ship because by His Spirit, it is the only one who can bring me safely to the shore. Amen? Amen. Galatians chapter 5. Father, we thank You so much for Your incredible grace. Lord, I can't control me. Only You can. God, I am sorry for all the times I've tried and failed. You know, I may get it right once, two, three, four, five times, but nowhere close to 70 times seven. God, only you can do that. Only by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom Christ raised from the dead, living in me, only by that mighty, dynamic, energizing force, can my soul be brought safely to your shore. God, may I be controlled, empowered, captain, led by the wind to carry out your will. By you living in me, Lord, then I will receive that which I long for. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create, restore, redeem, renew. Do that thing which only you can do so that I can do what you want. May I be enslaved and encaptivated and totally captured by you. In Jesus' name, amen.